Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Union Podcast. My name is Brian Pugh, and I am the co-founder of the Union Movement alongside my wife, Bonnie. And uh, we've developed this ministry, this organization, just really to be a help and a source of clarity um, from the Bible on the topic of sexuality and identity, marriage and relationships, all these areas of our life that can be really connected to our heart and really connected to the types of decisions that we make and what our future looks like. We really just want to be a source of clarity and joy and peace as we come into alignment with God's design for all these areas. And uh, if you're a first-time listener, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here, and we hope that this is exactly that for you. This is a source of peace and clarity. And uh, if you're a return listener, we're thankful as well, and we ask that you share this and subscribe and get this out and to all your friends, invite them into this in, into this context, this sphere. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, share this. It just helps us to uh, get this out in front of more people uh, and hopefully people find freedom um, in all these areas. Today, I'm sitting down with author and clinical psychologist, Dr. Ron Welch, and we're talking about his book, The 10 Choices Successful Couples Make. And uh, it's just a great conversation I had with him. He's got some great perspective. And, uh, and really, I think you're going to leave um, feeling like you have a say in what your future can look like and who you can be even as a single person right now, the type of uh, choices you can be making in your life to be a healthy single person that walks into marriage um, and flourishes and grows and gets to experience um, just peace and the joy that that marriage really is. And maybe you're married and this last season has put so much pressure on your marriage and it's confusing, it's frustrating, it's tiresome, and you're feeling trapped. And I want to encourage you today that this conversation I have with Dr. Ron is going to give you principle and truth uh, to dig your way out of this pit that you feel like you're in love and bring clarity and, really and, uh, and ultimately God set you up for us as we walk in line with, with his and self-sacrifice in the good sense that where you lay down your lives for each other and you get to experience uh, the joy that comes with that as you work as a team uh, moving forward in this gift of marriage. And so without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to our conversation with Dr. Ron Welch. You're listening to The Union Podcast. The Union exists to bring biblical confidence and clarity to the topics of relationships and sexuality. On this podcast, we unpack the damaging effects of modern sex culture and discuss how to heal from the past and enrich your relationships. Here are your hosts, Brian and Bonnie Pugh. All right. Well, welcome to the Union Podcast. I am here with Dr. Ron Welch. Dr. Ron, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So you hail from Colorado, am I correct? I do indeed. Yes. Yeah. You're part of the faculty at a seminary there? Denver Seminary. Yes. For about 13 years now. Oh, amazing. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we're, we're uh, sitting down to discuss your book, 10 Choices for Successful, successful Couples Make, The Secret to Love That Lasts a Lifetime. And first of all, I have to say, I love the title because it actually gives people a choice. And, and I know like, um, there's kind of this in underlying tone within um, society today and kind of when, when it comes to the topic of marriage that or even just love in general, that you don't have a choice in the matter. So I'm excited to to jump into this with you. But I just thought it'd be great for our listeners to kind of, kind of hear a little bit of your story and to hear um, how you and your wife, Jan, met. And you guys have been married for 30 plus years now. So we celebrate that. So what's a little bit of your guys' story? Well, we... Uh... We met and got engaged in about four and a half days. Yes, um, I heard this. Yeah, <laughs> I won't necessarily recommend that to your audience, but uh, right. 
35 years later, we're still going strong. I will tell you that it's been an up and down uh, journey, a lot of roller coaster times. Um, we got to know each other after the wedding, which probably isn't the uh, the right plan. Yeah. <laughs> but what uh, what ended up happening, and and this will make more sense maybe as we chat some. But um, I I came from a stable home with a lot of a lot of good solid upbringing from my parents in terms of what marriage might look like, and um, and yet I didn't really translate that into my own con- confidence level uh, mm-hmm. as a as a man and as a as a Christian. Um, and so I had a lot of insecurity and concerns right. and believe it or not, like I said, this may make sense later, but I ended up thinking in my head and my heart that the best chance I had of having Jan marry me was to get married quickly before she really discovered all my faults. Right. Wow. So that, wow. that's the level of insecurity I was, I was dealing with. And that came out in a lot of controlling behaviors and jealous behaviors Hmm. Um, one of the earlier books I wrote was called The Controlling Husband, and I've spent a lot of time over the last five or 10 years of my career talking about power and control in relationships and how destructive that can be. And that's just as true in the Christian marriage as in, as in secular folks. And so what we ended up having to do is figure out how we could understand those dynamics and figure out what God had in mind, because we were true believers that God had put us together for a reason, that there were things right. he wanted us to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but in retrospect, if I had my choice, man, I, I would give anything to have her not have had to go through some of those early years with all the growth and development I, I had to, to do. Cause I wasn't very grown up. I was pretty immature and I had a lot of, a lot of work to do that God had to, had to work on me for quite a few years. Yeah. Wow. Well, I appreciate your honesty and vulnerability with that. What, what was that, that turning point, I guess, like in those early years of marriage where it's just like, wow, like this is you know, like this is just like, I guess maybe here's my question. How did you become so aware of that? Like you're able to identify that now, but like, I think sometimes we're not aware of our own pain and our own uh, shortcomings and failures and areas of sin in our life. But what, what led you to that point where it was just very clear that this was, this was the issue. I spent a lot of time in the prison system as a, as a psychologist, not, not like being incarcerated, just (laughs) clarification. Um, but I, I, it became a pretty dark time because I was working in a prison environment where there were all sorts of really evil people and a lot of, a lot of difficult kind of choices people were making. Um, I wasn't a very good father. I wasn't a very good husband. And I can tell you, there was a point at which I remember both of my boys were starting to treat Jan in a similar way. It was sort of like, Mm. you need to go do this. And why didn't you pick me up from school at this time? And I gave him the dad lecture, right? You know, don't talk to your mom that way. Of course. Yeah. And then I remember God just slapping me across the face and and saying, who do you think is teaching him to disrespect women? You're the one who's causing all this. You're the one that created Mm. this dynamic in your family. And I could no longer equate my Christian faith with my unchristian behavior. I I couldn't make that work. I had been able to lie to myself for a while, but by that point, it's like, if I was teaching my sons how to disrespect women, that, that was no longer something I could live with. And so wow. over a period of three to five years, I started trying to, to work with mentors, with counselors, trying to get an understanding of where this came from. Um, I learned a lot about insecurity that I hadn't known before. Um, my mom, God bless her, was such a wonderful Christian woman, but, but she was kind of like the, the, the glass wasn't empty. It was draining rapidly, if that makes sense. It was, mm-hmm. She could see the, the bad things that might come around the corner. And I just became a pretty anxious person and the controlling behavior 
helped me minimize that because if I could right. stay in control of everything, um, my, my sons used to joke that I would, I would have to file an FBI report if they went to the mailbox because I'd be worried about their safety. <laughs> it was, you know, it was just, it wasn't a healthy situation. Right. And so I wish I could say, I just decided, Hey, this will get better. And it was all cool. But it was many years later that Jan, see for a lot of years, she kept thinking, well, I don't know if he's really changed. He'll probably go back to being who he was. She had right. a pretty controlling father. She was used to that dynamic growing up as a child. So it felt comfortable. And so as God was working with all that, he was actually molding and changing and growing our entire family. Both my sons, my wife, all of us had to have just ongoing conversations over many years about how we wanted to live our lives and what yeah. was going to be the way God wanted us to, to live as a family. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I, I, I do definitely want to get to the book, but I'd love to ask you a question as a, as a psychologist, why, why do you see people, why, why is control the go-to behavior with a lot of, when there's fear, there's anxiety, there's insecurity. Why do you, why do you see, I guess, in your experience, what's been kind of the telltale or the link between all those uh, dynamics that leads to control within people's lives? I've been seeing clients and couples for many, many years now, I guess probably close to 30 years, 25, 30 years. And one of the consistent factors is that if, if I can convince myself the world is a safer place, hmm. I won't be as scared. And the way I convince myself of that is to act like and pretend that I actually have control over things. And then I had experiences like both my parents died and I saw my marriage falling apart and I saw I was acting as a father. And it's like, okay, I never had near the control I thought I did. It's like wow. the quarterback on a football team, right? You get too much credit for success and too much blame for failure. Sure. sure. And I think that's where people come from is they just, they, they don't trust God. They, they, you know, if, mm. if, if we trusted God, we wouldn't have just as high an anxiety level in the Christian population right. by statistics as we do in the non-Christian population, right? We would, God would have our back and we wouldn't have anything to worry about. Yeah. But it's hard for us to internalize that. We can't sit back in the storm and say, God, I trust you, even though this isn't going the way I thought it was going to go. That's really right. hard for us to do. Wow. And so it's almost like we be, try to become our own God, don't we? We say like, yes. I, I will, be, I will be the Lord over my, my world and I'll, yes. and I'll be the alpha and the omega, you know, essentially. Right. And, right. and from an early age, uh, and I'll, I'll speak um, gender, gender terms for a second here, even from an early age, young men are taught that they're taught about um, being getting what they want in the sandbox if they if they're dominant with their toys right or um being the strongest person on a football field or being the the leader in a, a job i mean we're, we're we're kind of taught growing up that if you're just in control if you're aggressive better things happen because people tend to and so one of my, part of my one of my arguments in one of the earlier books was the idea that that pattern then goes right into marriage of course, we're used to control being the way we get what we want. And so then it's like, wow, how do we mm -hmm. suddenly change that as men and say, now nah, that doesn't work if you're called to sacrifice and serve your wife. Yeah. That model falls apart real quickly. Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't line up with the character of Jesus who willingly gave up his life, laid it down, you know, for the bride that he loved, right? It's his yep. church. So, yeah. Well, that's amazing. I'd love to hear, like, what's your driving passion behind writing this book, The 10 Choices uh, Successful Couples Make? You know, the, the, the title says a lot of it. Uh, relationships mm -hmm. are all about choices. And I, I am very, very committed to people not feeling hopeless or helpless 
And those in your audience I, may be in a variety of different places in their relationships. But I have come to believe that God can work miracles in relationships at all sorts of places. I've had couples that have been to three different lawyers and they filed all the paperwork and they just thought, well, maybe I should go to counselor before we get divorced. And I've seen the kinds of things God can do when two people take responsibility for their own behavior. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying what he said and what she said, it's like, let me see what God needs me to change in my own life. Mm-hmm. So the, the choices aspect was to say, hey, let us give you 10 ways that you could choose to be different as a partner in your relationship and see if maybe instead of trying to critique your partner, you could say, hey, I need to look in the mirror first and see what God wants me to change about my life. And some of these choices end up being things that both partners can choose to prioritize each other in. And suddenly the relationship, I, I don't know if you've noticed this in society, but there, there's a couple of models of marriage out there. One is very much, um, it's about me. I'm in this for me. Yes, um, of course. You know, it's, it's, there's even, there was even a book years ago called The Starter Marriage. There was a show on USA Network called The Starter Wife. I mean, it's this idea that we'll trade up to a better model later. Wow. And that's not an unusual model for young people that I run into today. They, they, they expect to be divorced. And yeah. that's a bad statement, but it's, it's true. And so right. then you have this other model that looks at serving the partner and being selfless instead of selfish. And those models are really at odds today because people tend to kind of fall into one of two camps. And that has a lot to do with why we still have a 50% divorce rate, in my opinion. Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. What do you say? Like, I know we kind of touched on it at the very beginning, this idea that, you know, that love is a choice. And because so much is just like, um, and we've talked about it before. So I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to say too much on it. I'd love to hear your perspective. But, you know, um, like just how our society has just all made it about this, this feeling, this emotional, you know, um, and even how movies portray it, this like, oh, how they yeah. fell in love. And it's like, but if you can fall in based on your emotion, you can fall out based on your emotion. So yeah. what do you what do you say to that narrative that just says, well, actually, love is is an emotional feeling and should be, you know, accompanied with the warm and fuzzies or else it's not genuine? Well, full disclosure, I'm a big Hallmark fan. I love sure. Hallmark movies. <laughs> right. I, I love the happy endings. Yeah. But not throwing I, any I, shade. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just I don't think it's falling in love. I think it's more of a jumping kind of choice. Mm. It's like I'm going to choose today to focus all my energy and effort to be the best uh, husband or wife I can be. And, and I have to focus all my energy on that because if I don't, all of the other things that take up my time and my energy end up getting all the time and, and focus. And the idea of serving my wife doesn't become part of what I do on a daily basis. I'll have couples pull out their planners and they'll show me what the week looks like. And there's, there's all sorts of stuff in there. There's work, church, some guy named Frank gets an hour on Thursday, you know, the cat's in there, but, but my partner's name doesn't show up in my plan for the week. Yeah. And so I'll ask them, when are you going to be married this week? You know, tell me. Yeah, where wow. is your, and, and so we spend a lot of time looking at that and saying, what would it look like to look on Sunday evening and say, when are we going to be married this week? Schedule all of that first. And, and make that sacred, holy time that's set in stone and then make all the other choices around that to prioritize the relationship first, the family first, God first. And that's like, okay, I have these things called jobs and softball games and, you know, whatever else we do, but that stuff shouldn't be getting in the schedule six months in advance when your partner's name doesn't show up yet. That's just not the way God intended marriage to work. Oh, absolutely. That's such a great point. I love that. When are we going to be married this week? 
Because I think my my wife Bonnie and I we've been married for you know 14 years and congratulations that's awesome thank thank you yeah we're doing our best I don't know if I mentioned this but we have six boys if you could believe it or not so oh my goodness yeah so well then God bless you (laughs) yeah yeah if we can make your prayer list that'd be great absolutely (laughs) but um but uh you know that's just the thing that we've noticed over the years it's like you know Dave Ramsey talks about how like if you don't tell your money what to do it'll it'll leave. You know, and I think our times like that too, you know, if we don't make a priority, if we don't block something out and it's like how many times have, uh, you know, I look back in, in the years and we've gotten better at it now, but like, you know, over the years, there's times where it's like a day turns into a week where we haven't really connected because life is busy, you know, and, yeah. and your time just fills up with a number of things that, that really don't lead to the flourishing of this area of your life, you know? Absolutely. What have you and your wife, Jen, how have you guys prioritized that? Like what was the, some real practical things that you guys did to really guard that time? We, we started, um, I talk a lot about process versus content. And Mm. what I mean by that is that we started focusing much more on how we treated each other than whatever the topic du jour happened to be. Mm. So it didn't matter if it was because I had left the toilet seat up or because, you know, she didn't say the right thing sure. what I thought she should say. And I wanted yeah. to critique something. We focused a lot more on when I said that to you, how did it feel? Did, mm. did we leave the conversation with both of us feeling loved and cared for and valued, or did we kind of feel hurt and disrespected and less mm. than the other? And we found when we changed the process of how we communicated and interacted and we changed the process of how we scheduled that time and, you know, made certain you and I both know, no, no, no good comes from a conversation after like nine o'clock at night, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it just never goes yeah. well. So we started scheduling time in our days to have morning check-ins together, to have lunch or um, mm-hmm. dinner to say, we're not going to talk about the kids stuff tonight. We're going to talk about each other. Um, and as we scheduled that time and started changing the process of how we communicated, we found it didn't really matter whatever the topic was. We could do that in a way that was healthy and empowering and let us both to feel loved and cared for afterwards. That's amazing. That's amazing. What do you, what do you say to the couple who like they're feeling the weight of negative patterns in their marriage? They're feeling the weight of, you know, like maybe not doing so much work on the front end of their marriage. And then you have kids and you have, you know, so much other things that start to pull on your resources, both emotionally and and all this. And now they're starting to get buried by this life. How do you help them kind of get out of that, that rut or that reoccurring pattern, um, and really start to see that priority, um, brought back. Well, you know, one of the first things that I, I think is fair or appropriate to do is to, to stop looking at the last five years or 10 years or 20 years and say, let's look at the greater body of our work this week. So if we're going to try to use less, um, offensive language, using some name or calling each other names or, you know, I see couples in all states of, of um, disrespect and disrepair. And some of them are, you know, if we're not throwing projectiles in the house, we're happy. And other ones, it's like, you know, we just need to stop using that tone of voice, whether it's critical or distrusting or condemning or, you know, aggressive or dismissive. I mean, if we could change that, well, that's all we're going to focus on this week. We're going to let the other things go And we're going to say, can we change this thing? Can we use a civil tone of voice and just be nice to each other? And they do Mm -hmm. that for a week. And then they come back and they're like, oh, wow. Well, 
what's different here? Why, why are we able to talk civilly? And then mm. I talk with them about this thing. And like when I have couples come in, sometimes it will be, we're just not going to say negative things. So they just stop the conflict. And sometime during our chat, I'll talk a little bit about this Niagara Falls metaphor that I use with folks. I think is really valuable, but they'll just kind of stop that negative conflict and they'll come in. And one couple came in, been like three days. They hadn't talked to each other. They were just silent. And I gave them high fives and said, man, you're awesome at this counseling stuff. Great work. And they're like, what's wrong with you, Welch? And from my perspective, instead of yelling at each other and hurting each other for three days, they had said nothing. That's progress. Right. Right. So it's like, let's make some change that will make us feel that God can actually miraculously change our lives. Mm -hmm. And then they sit back and they can't be hopeless anymore because whatever they just did and how they talk to each other with their tone of voice, they can now do in the issues about where to work and who's spending more time at work and whether or not they agree on parenting issues or an alcohol mm -hmm. problem. Those things are easier to handle when they already know they've had some small successes in other areas that they can change. Does right. that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think that's on point. I think this would be a great, great spot to maybe take a quick break here. And then I'd love to hear, I was just going to ask you about that Niagara Falls analogy and that principle. So we can, we'll pick it up here in just a minute. Hey, it's Brian from the union here. And it goes without saying in our day, sexuality has become very, very complicated. Many followers of Christ are finding themselves with big questions about hot topic issues of gender, relationships, and sexuality, and have questions like, what is tradition? What is cultural pressure? What does actually scripture say about these areas of my life? And with this in mind, we've released an eight-session e-course for young adults called The Journey Home. It includes digitally accessed video teachings and self-reflective study guides that helps you take action steps to apply what you are learning. If you would like to go through the course as an individual or go through it as a group, you can find out more at courses.theunionmovement.com. All right. So we're back here with Dr. Ron Welch, and we are talking about his book, his uh, 10 choices successful couples make and the secret to love that lasts a lifetime. Now, Dr. Ron, you had just mentioned just before that break there, um, an analogy you use, uh, the Niagara Falls analogy. Could you uh, just unpack that for us and how it equips um, a couple to kind of gauge where they are in the conflict process? Sure. Have you, uh, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I have not. I am Canadian, but I'm on the West Coast. I've never yeah. been. It's a big waterfall, lots of water, lots of power. My yeah. Canadian colleagues tell me to make sure to say that the Canadian side is much prettier than the American side. So I'm just, yeah. I, that, I have colleagues here who are Canadian and have made that very clear to me. So I, yeah, you have to say that, that as a Canadian. Have to, yes. We have to take credit for something. <laughs> but I will tell you that the one thing about Niagara Falls that's interesting when we were there in the past is that the falls themselves make sense in terms of the power they have and the difficulty that one would have changing course when they're going over the falls. It's almost impossible to turn the boat around, turn the barrel around, whatever the person's in and, and go back upstream. Right. And I learned about this in the federal prison system when I was working there. A guy named Bill Fleeman did a lot of work with Niagara Falls and anger management and inmates. Hmm. And, I, and I talked to, to the Fleeman folks and I said, hey, can I can I use this for marriage? Because it seems to me the interesting thing about Niagara Falls is not actually the falls, but upriver. If you follow the river up a couple miles, it's actually calm and serene. You can kind of swim in and out. You can take a boat in and out or an inner tube. And there's all these opportunities to change what you're doing. Wow. As you get closer to the falls, you start hearing the roar. You know, there's signs saying, hey, you in the barrel, get out. You know, there's there was mm -hmm. even a a metal cable running across that people try and grab onto. There are all these last minute ways to save yourself 
But for the most part, the closer you get, the harder it is to stop. So what I've had couples do, and, and they've, they've really utilized this well in conferences we do as well as my private practice. And what they'll do is they'll say, I, 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 I feel like the closer I get to the falls, I, I run out of any choice. And so we'll say, okay, well, then let's get farther up the river when we're making choices. And I'll have them make a four lists. I'll have them make a list about themselves of what they're, uh, how do they know when they're not okay? And I'll have the wife, for instance, make that list and the husband make that list. So they, they might have 15 things on the list of all the things that let them know they're, they're having a problem. Maybe it's they get tense in their, their forehead or they, their heart beats faster or they start finding their distancing from their partner. And then I'll have each partner make a list about the other partner. So the wife sees things on the outside that the husband shows that he doesn't see himself and vice versa. So now you have four lists of all these warning signs and I have them rank order them which are the ones that are way up river early in the process and which ones are right there at the falls where you're going to go over. And what they do is I've had couples have posted like a huge picture of Niagara Falls in their kitchen. They've laminated with all their warning signs in places. I, I had one guy one time who, who laminated the warning signs in his, his wallet card and he'd pull it out. And the first one says, shut up because he would always say stuff and, and then it would cause trouble. And the second one says, no, you can't talk yet. Shut up again. Right. And eventually by about number five, it says, okay, if you've really understood what she has to say, then you can talk, right? But, but there's all these warning signs. And, and in what, what couples find is there's an amazing amount of choice mm-hmm. early on in the process that gets taken away when the emotion and the conflict cycle and the power of defensiveness and resentment and bitterness and right. frustration take over. So this is a process your listeners might be able to use to say, hey, we could figure out our own conflict process prepare ourselves to see when we're getting in trouble and get out of the water, take a time out, d- disconnect back the back up and then go back up river and say, okay, now we can get back in the water in a safe place and have con- conversations about things that prevent all, all those negative things. I, I will tell you a lot of couples will end up going over the falls. Anyway, they'll look at each other and say, Oh, you want to fight? Okay, let's go over the falls. And then they're like circling in the eddies down at the bottom, having trouble getting out and yeah. that can go on for weeks or months. And, I'll tell them, you know, that that could happen. And you have to forgive each other and say, hey, we both knew what was going to happen if we went over the falls. Let's not do that again. So hopefully this analogy is something your listeners can get some value out of. Oh, absolutely. I think that's real. That's like where the rubber meets the road. That's like everyday practice. You know what I mean? How do you identify those things and keep and and cut them off before they even become an issue? You know, right? Have loving, honest communication and yeah. be be quick to listen and slow to speak and and hear each other out before it becomes an issue. So I guess one question I have for you, um, sometimes people feel powerless, especially like if they're in a marriage where the spouse has, you know, you mentioned just very briefly, like alcohol problems, or there is substance abuse problems, or we're seeing, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously a, you know, there's a huge, um, uh, influence of pornography within marriage. Sure. And like you look at divorce, yeah. divorce rates and the connection to pornography use being in the relationship. How mm-hmm. do you help that other spouse start to see that like they're, they're not a victim in the sense of they still have a choice. They still have a say in this. And that, and then I'd, lo- I'd love to move in to talk about forgiveness, but how do you help people to see that they're not a victim and that they can still have a say in this and that they're not just it's not just over. It's not just done. That things can be turned around. A couple of excellent authors in my field, Claude and Townsend, wrote a book a while back called Boundaries. And there have been several versions of the Boundaries book that have been out there. But a lot of that had to do with the idea of saying, 
it feels like the other person's in charge because we can't control their behavior, but we have complete control of setting boundaries about what we will accept. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll be on radio shows and uh, uh, someone will call in, you know, saying, well, I, I, this, this sounds great, Welch, but, but my partner refuses to change. And then I'll ask them, well, what boundaries have you set? And again, that, you know, I should point out for your listeners, if we're talking about violent relationships, if we're talking yes. about situations where there's danger involved, those situations, you have to get help. You have to report the situation. You have to contact yes, the authorities. You can't take it into your own hands. But if there isn't a dangerous situation, it's just a partner who says, I don't want to change. Then you can ask questions like, say it's a Christian couple and the husband is the more controlling one. And he's just kind of set and saying, I, I don't care what you want. I'm not going to do it. You could say, help me see where in Ephesians 5 it says that's okay for you to do, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you could just ask a question and say, hey, I'd love to study the passage in the Bible about marriage and tell me where it says Absolutely. that servant leadership involves saying, forget you, I don't want to change. Mm -hmm. and, and, and just have, a, and, or another wife, a husband or wife will say something like, well, she just says that that's just what she has to do and there's nothing she can do about it and she just doesn't want to change. And, and I'll say, well, okay, but couldn't you set a boundary to say, well, this week, just for this week, can we just try not to do that and see if God does something that was unexpected just because right. we stopped doing that one thing? And you know what? I'll even make an agreement with you. If you'll, if you'll look at this one thing, tell me something on your list you'd like, really like me to work on. And we'll both try to serve each other in that way this week and see what happens. What's the worst that can happen? We can be right where we are today. Right. Or we could be better off. We could both say, wow, this servant thing, I guess God knew what he was talking about. This servant leadership thing is pretty cool. And then yeah. you have sacrifice and servanthood becomes an action they can take. And suddenly it doesn't feel hopeless or it doesn't feel like I don't have a choice because now you've seen some evidence that you can change things. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. I, um, I remember having a conversation with, with my pastor and he, he just said something that was so interesting to how, because he, he counsels some, uh, does some of the marriage counseling within our church and but he just said that, like, why is it that always the guys, he just, he was kind of just referring to guys. It's not that women wouldn't do this maybe, but a long story short, he just said, why is it that the guys always cry when it's too late? Mm. And, and that just, that always just stuck mm -hmm. with me because it's like, sometimes we're not willing to change when things are, they're not, maybe they're not great, but they're not really bad, you know? And then, but then all of a sudden things get really bad and, and maybe a wife who's been putting up with you know, selfish behavior from her, her husband and just has not, you know, has just been kind of swallowing it for years. And then finally it says, you know what, I've had enough. How do you, how do you handle that? Where now all of a sudden it hits home with the one spouse and then, and they're now they're really motivated to change because they're seeing mm -hmm. kids being taken from them. They're seeing right. separation, divorce, all this stuff, this, these things that they never thought were going to happen. What do you do in that moment? And, you know, maybe speaking from a leadership standpoint or like a pastoral mm -hmm. counselor standpoint, then also what do you do as a spouse when that's, mm -hmm. when that's your reality? I think what's happened is that that sounds and feels a lot like all the work I've done over the years with addicts, where it's like, you have to hit bottom. Right. And, and it has. And so if you're not careful, by the time you hit bottom, you've already lost everything. And now you're finding out what you could have or should have done in the divorce process after you're watching, you know, you're, you're talking about child custody instead of, you know, behavior change. Yeah. I think one of the things that couples can do is look at what I call unspoken truths. It's what, what are the things that you have come to believe about each other that you just accept as true? Like hmm. he's lazy or work matters more to him than we do, 
or um, she cares more about her job than me, or, you know, she, she's going to listen to her mother instead of me, no matter what anyway. So why would I say, anything? or it's best to just leave and not rock the boat or not say anything. If you start paying attention to where those came from and you give yourself a chance to say, and I even have some exercises I do in conferences where I have couples write down all these kind of statements they've come to believe wow. and ask yourself if you want that to be the truth on which you act. Hmm. Because if he actually is the lazy jerk you just said he was, and he's literally um, unable to care about other people over himself, then how is it he can go to work and be a success in his ministry? Wow. Well, why is there such a contradiction? And yet, couldn't we sit down and say, well, no, he only seems to show selfishness at home, but he's very selfless in his job. Hmm. That would be something we could talk about. And, and those are statements that sometimes people get hit across the face with and they say, wow, is that really what you believe? Wow. Yeah. I never knew that. And, yeah. and they have a choice then. Now you got another choice, another chance to say, well, we can just keep on the path we're going. And we can believe, because see what happens is that by the time you believe those things in your heart, you start expecting the other person to be that way. Mm. And it's really hard to change. My wife saw this a lot in me. I would really, I, I, I swear to you, I would have like a couple months where I was doing a really good job as a husband. Sure. And, and then one, one day would happen and I'd screw up. I'd, and then she's like, there's old Ron back. I knew he was, and I, I'd feel so, so defeated. Oh, of course. Like, yeah. And from her perspective, she was like, waiting for perfect evidence. And so we started saying, hey, if we're hitting 90%, that's good enough. Forget the 100% success rate. Mm -hmm. If I'm thinking of her before myself, 90% of the day, awesome. And, and it slowly allowed us to have reasonable expectations of change. And suddenly my partner became someone who could help me change rather than someone who resented my not changing. And that made all the, the world a difference for us because both of us together were trying to make these changes as a couple. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, you know, I think you, you and I both know that we've, you know, you and Jan getting to 30 plus years of marriage and Bonnie and I getting to 14, uh, years and still more years to come for both of us. Right. Yeah. Like we only got there by forgiveness. Yeah. Right. And yeah. why do you think for like forgiveness is something that we, or at least I, hopefully we know that we need, but why is it so hard to forgive within marriage for some people? I know that's, that's probably a very general question and that's hard to really nail down, but what is, what is maybe a key in your, in your experience that keeps people from forgiving? I, uh, I realized years ago, um, a good friend of mine, Ev, Ev Worthington wrote some books related to forgiveness. And what he was talking about was the experience he had where his mother was brutally assaulted and killed by a criminal. And he had to figure out how does a Christian forgive someone who has violently assaulted and killed your mother. How does, how does that work? Yeah. And I learned a lot from conversations over many years with him. And one of the thing I realized is that you have to give up your power when you forgive someone, because mm. you keep saying it, it's not fair. It, how did they, like, I've had people say, well, there, he's going to get away with it. If I forgive him, it's like, he got away with it. And he didn't it's like, well, it's not your job to punish God. God takes care of that role. And you have to look at it and say, Forgiveness is not fair. It's not gonna. It's not gonna even up the books. There's no score sheet that you can, you know, win with if you keep a score sheet about your partner. But what you can do is say, I'm going to choose to treat you as if you didn't do that thing, because your apology means you're going to do everything in your power to not be the person that did that in the future. The mm -hmm. Catholic Church has a lot of good things to say about this. You know, the word repentance now is kind of a 
dirty word. People don't like it. It makes oh, them feel sure. better. Yeah. But, but the idea of, I say I'm sorry, that means I'm going to try to be such a better person that I won't do what I did again. Mm-hmm. You, you believe there's sincerity and authenticity in my apology. And you say, okay, I forgive you. And this interchange starts between the two people where they're trying to be their best selves. Right. And they both ask God to help them change. And the next thing you know, your forgiveness allows you to expect the other person to be better. And mm-hmm. their apology allows them to do their best to be better. And suddenly you can move past things that otherwise seem like walls that are, are impossible to get by. Yeah. Wow. What have been kind of the, the fruit that you've seen in your experience working with couples where forgiveness is not extended? And I guess, what would you, what would you say to that person who is just like, I is kind of digging their heels and like, I, I will not forgive them. And some things it's like, I understand that there's things to, that are harder to forgive than, than others, you know, right. When there's deep levels of betrayal is different than, Hey, you didn't take the garbage out today, you know, (laughs) right. Like it's different, but what do you, what would you say to that person who is just really, no, I can't forgive. I won't forgive. You you won't be surprised to hear my response, but it's a choice, right? Mm-hmm. In that case, you're making a choice to actively maintain a wall between you and the person you say you love and want to help grow. And you're saying, I will not be a conduit through which God can help you change. I'm going to make certain that I maintain this mm-hmm. boundary between me and you. And people have the right to do whatever they want as human beings, right? We can make whatever choices we want, but that choice is no different than a choice to be selfish in another area or to be hard in your heart and not allow change. And I don't think there's very many biblical passages that support that type of behavior. I I think the example of what God did, um, imagine how our world would be right now and our hearts would be thinking about our futures if God hadn't chosen to forgive humanity. Oh yeah. I mean, how helpless and hopeless and overwhelmed. And if we can sit there and accept God's forgiveness and, and his ability to, to give us a new path to mm-hmm. redemption through Christ, then man, how do we have the right to say, I will not forgive you. That that's, that sounds pretty harsh to me. And I think it's a choice you have to live with if you're going to make it. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, you think about kind, gentle, you know, uh, patient Jesus says, if you don't forgive someone of their sins, I won't forgive your sins. Like that's, that's strong. That's pretty strong. And so we need to be very sober, soberly minded when we think about forgiveness and being quick to forgive, not, not saying that what that behavior was is okay. And that's signing off on that, but it's just saying that, no, I will not be judge, jury and executioner for you. And remember that choices have consequences. Absolutely. Sometimes they can be incredibly good and make amazing transformation. That's why I've called my practice transformational marriage all these years is because the people that leave the process don't look at all like the people that entered the process because God has made so many changes and miraculously allowed transformation in their marriages. But changes can also be very, very negative. If you decide you're going to dig your heels in, then those choices have consequences too. Yeah. You've kind of drawn the do not pass go card. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and the good thing about that is you're never helpless. Mm. It may feel like it, but yeah. if you choose to make that choice that moves toward redemption and transformation, God can do amazing things when you allow him to have that entryway into your marriage. Oh, absolutely. 
Well, Dr. Ron, thank you so much for your time today. I love your insight and these principles are just really, really practical. Can just, you know, like I said, it's right where the rubber meets the road. Um, how can our listeners kind of stay in touch with you and get their copy of 10 Choices Successful Couples Make? Sure. Uh, it's available wherever books are sold all across the internet. Uh, the website for, for my practice is transformational-marriage.com. There's all sorts of resources there about the books and kind of some of the principles and ideas that we have. Um, but the books are available anywhere and they can just look them up on their favorite bookseller. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I know this is going to be such a, a powerful, powerful episode and be a real tool for transformation uh, in married couples' lives. And even those who are going to yet to be married, this is some great stuff that can help you be prepared to step into this beautiful world that is very challenging at times. So <laughs> again, we thank you so much, Dr. Ron, and we wish you all the best. I appreciate it. Thanks so much and God bless. Thanks for listening to The Union Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at theunionmovement.com. For more information, please visit our website, theunionmovement.com, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Union Movement.